This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's monthly show about comics, graphic novels, and sequential art. In today's program, we're looking at graphic novelists who explore human behaviour in their books. Later in the show, I'm talking to artist Daniel Locke and writer Alex Frith about their collaboration, Two Heads, where two neuroscientists explore how our brains work with other brains, a non-fiction graphic novel which looks at the work of Alex's parents, Uta and Chris Frith, two renowned neuroscientists, and the graphic novel explores how their research works development of the human brain and its collaboration with others. However, to start off with, I'm talking to Veronica Mucic about her graphic novel Cyberman. This book follows a year in the life of the webcammer Ari Kivikangas, who spent his life for many years bumbling about his small apartment entirely on webcam, with people being able to log into the site cyberman.tv whenever they wanted to and either watch Ari sleep, go about his everyday life and occasionally spend time with friends and his cat. Veronica's graphic novel illustrates various moments from Ari's life and how her own contact with the webcam via the interface on his website, a chat box that she used under a pseudonym, led to an unsettling moment where she was identified by the person that she was watching on screen. When visiting the Cyberman site, Veronica used an alias based on a character from Rear Window, and I'm talking to her about all of these elements of her graphic novel as part of a Q&A recorded at Waterstones in Brighton last year, alongside Daniel and Alex. So Veronica, I was looking at your kind of history as a cartoonist, and I guess it was part of your artistic practice when you were in Falmouth. Did you go to art school with the intent of kind of learning the trade of a cartoonist? Or did you go there just to kind of expand your practice as an artist? And then you realised that comics were the field that you wanted to work in? Yeah, so I think I was quite lucky because I did an MA called Authorial Illustration. And so it was quite focused on narrative illustration. And before then, I always thought of illustration as a profession, you know, commissioned work mainly. And um, but it kind of never really worked for me, I think. Mm. And then that course, I, I really have to credit it for. Like, um, I think it was really good at like spotting everyone's strength and kind of um, amplifying it in, in some way. I think and. Um, and so Cyberman actually is a product of the MA. So um, it was, yeah, my second term I started it and then I obviously continued after my course finished. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so were you just, were you looking for a topic that you could do a long form graphic novel about? Because I've seen that you've done shorter work as well. Yeah. Um, but I guess you must have done that at the same time in between doing chapters of Cyberman. Yeah, so I think... First off, I was I think I was always very interested in the um, sort of voyeuristic aspect generally. So I, I thought of illustration as a tool to um, connect with people in some way and also mm-hmm. to observe them. So I had like um, 
on on the course first i i did loads of um portraits of people so people's facebook profile pictures and i just drew them and then i sent them to them on facebook and these were also strangers so it was for me always this interesting awkwardness about like you know stalking someone <laughs> which we all do and then kind of um indulging in it in some sort of way so nice. that was my angle and then Cybermen happened very randomly so I don't think I saw it instantly as a comic book mm. it was more I saw this person and I wanted to paint him and yeah I kind of took it to a further extreme I think okay yeah, yeah. I mean it, it's a really fascinating book you you get a number of kind of journalistic graphic novels where people are interviewing people about their experiences in war zones or other countries you know or their their jobs or whatever but this this feels almost like an anthropological study to the extent that you're almost like an anonymous observer of this guy's world just kind of interacting with him in the chat box but at first i mean uh, can i can i slightly spoil the plot yeah, please, yeah. <laughs> okay so you kind of you you reveal your identity to him yeah. kind of accidentally sort mm -hmm. of three quarters of the way through the book but before that point you know your kind of interactions with him are just in the chat box the way that I guess people do interact with sort of twitch streamers and other sort of modern phenomena yeah. but in that sense you're kind of observing him and you're not really having a huge impact on your life it does make me feel like I don't know one for a better word for like Diane Fossey looking at gorillas as well <laughs> you know it, it feels like this kind of like active observation and just seeing someone in their natural habitat and yeah. and seeing how they exist i think to me those um those chat rooms online i think they're quite like a cruel place at times mm. because you're kind of faced with a lot of misogyny racism at times unfortunately discrimination generally so i saw uh, quite a bit of that and also the way people um, interacted with Cyberman himself mm. was quite like cruel at times or, um, and I think to me that the book um, I, I kind of wanted to have a very affectionate approach I think so it's true I think um, what you say with that observing someone through a glass almost mm. you know and I think to keep also that distance between us you know because I could have you know I could have started the book with revealing myself to him as well mm. and kind of starting a more honest friendship in some way I guess but I think there's I do see myself as quite an introvert person so I quite like this layer of glass between yeah. us too I think yeah. yeah well I mean it's interesting you you kind of reveal your uh nom de plume um to the readers right from the start it says on the front aka L LB Jeffries um but you don't even necessarily as the reader make that connection reading the same name in the chat boxes but then there's this kind of amazing moment three quarters of the way into the book where we see your reflection in the glass of the screen of the computer that you're looking at and that feels I guess it's the same moment that your identity is revealed to him it's the same time that your identity is revealed to the reader and I think that's really fascinating that at that point you become very much uh, a more active presence in the narrative that you're drawing I mean, was that, again, I guess it was happenstance in a way that it, it wasn't an intended thing. You know, you didn't necessarily mean uh, for him to find out exactly who you were. But once that happened, did you realise, as a storyteller, actually, this is something that works really well in terms of a narrative? Yeah, I think 
did so many years ago now. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I guess because yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, because I guess the, all the story happened and then I painted it, so it took a long time to actually put it into a book. But um, yeah, I think it was to me such a shock to reveal myself to him in some mm. ways because it wasn't planned. Mm. So. Afterwards, I instantly shut down my computer and like put it away. I was very yeah uh, struck by it in some way. So I think yeah, it made sense to have that almost as like a how do you say um a, a, yeah, it was kind of like an, a point of action in the book because mm. the book doesn't have a lot of action itself. I would I would sure. say in some yeah. way. Mm. Yeah. moment of revelation yeah. I guess mm-hmm. yeah. and the fact that you've painted the entire book I mean obviously you know as artists I mean you know Dan's here we'll talk later about his style but I guess you know everyone who makes comics has a particular medium that they work in whether it's pen pencil or or paint as, as you do but having a fully painted graphic novel that's about a screen experience that feels really interesting of itself that you've chosen a very kind of analog medium in order to depict something that was originally about a glowing screen that's all to yeah. do with pixels. Again, was that kind of an artistic choice or was it just the way yeah. that you like to render? I think both. Anyway. Okay. It seemed like it's, it was all, I think I always, I never worked digitally basically, so it was, mm. but it seemed um, quite uh, yeah, adequate for, for the story in some way because it's such a contrast. I guess so, um, and again because I feel like um, it uh, adds a lot of like personal, maybe mm-hmm. kind of reveals. A, I feel like yeah, that maybe painting reveals quite a lot about the painter in a mm-hmm. way because you kind of see the stroke, and so I guess this was also a way to um, reveal a bit about myself in the book by, um, but in a. Um, passive ways so were you taking screenshots from time to time so that you could then reproduce them later yeah yeah so yeah it's all painted from an archive of screenshots wow built but it means then occasionally you're also painting digital glitches which is really nice occasionally you're (laughs) painting like digital ghosts and and pixels on the screen as well which is kind of really fantastic rendering you know those kind of digital artifacts that we're all used to because of a bad Wi-Fi signal or whatever, but doing it in an analogue medium. There's something kind of really cool, for a better word, you know, about that process. Was that, do those sort of things excite you or is it, again, just because it's a documentary process, this is what they still look like at this moment and therefore I'm going to reproduce it? Or did you like actually that kind of tension between a digital image and then a painting? Yeah, one? for sure, yeah, because I think, yeah, that um, yeah, kind of humanizing that digital world. I think mm. that was kind of from the beginning conceptually quite important to me in some ways. Yeah. Mm. And so obviously, you know, the this guy Ari that you spent um, months documenting, and how long is, is the whole narrative? I didn't kind of pay attention to it. But I guess months also befriending, or at least paying um, attention to. Yeah, online. about a year till I okay. sent him. Uh, so no spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, that's kind of in a way like a profound act of voyeurism. I mean, and you comment on that—the fact that your uh, handle uh, in cyberspace is the same as the protagonist from Rear Window. Um, 
but at the same time, he's a he's a willing. Uh, I th- what's the opposite of warrior? War- mm. Warriory. <laughs> he's, he's a willing participant in being watched. Yeah. You know, so that and that is a really interesting a, transaction. In points, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, but this seems a very modern phenomenon, and and the fact that the book has come out now, after we've all spent the best part of two years just interacting with people online, yeah. it's kind of perfect happenstance. I mean, not perfect for people who had an awful time during lockdown, but in terms of the release of this book. You know, this is very much present in people's minds, you know, having only interacted via screens to then have this kind of great documentation of it. Uh, you know, as the creator of this, obviously it wasn't intended. You started this years ago. But do you see those additional resonances and have people spoken to you about that yet? Um, I haven't spoken to people about yet quite. Um, but actually when it happened, I was really worried about it because right. I thought it would take a bit away from that uniqueness of that person being because I thought now we all have to go through that experience so it almost mm. yeah I mean despite obviously the devastating effect of the pandemic that was another aspect of it that annoyed me about <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if only we'd all had a good time <laughs> um, and I've, something I've noticed in some of your other comics is that you're very interested in rendering architecture, in rendering kind of interiors in the built environment. And here you, you know, basically have a camera constantly pointed at someone's um, room, someone's, you know, kind of curated uh, living space. Was that something else that kind of attracted you to this? Because it is very much the minutiae of someone, how they live in their space and how they interact with it. Yeah, definitely. I think that's always... um an aspect in my work, it's true. I think that comes quite subconsciously as well. Mm. It always seems to find its way back. So I think it's generally, yeah, I think all my work contains kind of like the isolation of someone uh, Mm. in an environment is kind of like the outline of my work, I'd say. Um, And sometimes I use, I specifically use the place to illustrate that rather than the person. Mm. So... And I guess in the book, it's kind of a nice merge between the two, maybe. But, yeah. yeah. Because another one of your comics is about a person who's squatting in Ikea. Yeah. You know, so again, <laughs> it's about a person finding themselves in an environment that they feel comfortable, but to the outside observer seems really unusual. Yeah. And maybe in uh, a, a space that, that's also restricted in some ways. Because, mm. yeah. I mentioned your um, comparison to Rear Window that you make in the comic. And in a way, it's kind of like flipping uh, the narrative there. Because in Rear Window, James Stewart's character is trapped in his flat because he's got a broken leg. And so he spends his time watching people who can move in and out of their flat. Well, this is the other way around, that it's someone who's trapped in their flat and has chosen never to leave while you can come and go. Mm-hmm. I mean, was that also kind of an interesting aspect of it, that you recognise the kind of voyeurism? But at the same time, it's a bit of role reversal as well. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think there was quite a lot of... There was just some analogies I um, I picked up on when I watched the film that I thought was quite interesting to kind mm-hmm. of um, reflect my own work on. Just as, yeah, and... Um, yeah, it's true, but it, it is in reverse. I've never thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't yeah. make you the killer, then. <laughs> <laughs> How big do you uh, normally work? How large um, are these paintings? So they are all about A5 
size okay. on like an A4 paper. So slightly reduced for the, the printed page. Quite, yeah, quite reduced. I mean, it, it, it depends. So they are actually all the same size. And then on one page, sometimes I have six panels or sometimes mm. just two panels. So, yeah, I quite like to work on a bigger scale and then shrink it down rather than the other way around. And when it came to the computer text, was that hand-drawn or, or did you manipulate it in Photoshop um, to add that? So the original version was hand-drawn. Um, Okay. But then for the publication, um, we decided it would be best to have to make a font out <laughs> of it. Okay. So it, I made my own font, um, mm. fonts actually, two different ones for the book, yeah. So, right. Which saved me a lot of trouble, <laughs> I think, in the mind. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Mm. You, um, Ian introduced this book, and obviously his uh, kind of background and what he's known for is working with um, graphic medicine. And... Although um, Ari seems to be kind of happy with his lot to a certain degree, you do feel that this is also kind of an observation of someone who is suffering from some kind of mental illness, whether it's depression or whether it's agoraphobia or what. Um, and so, you know, it was nice to hear you say that you wanted to portray a kind of humanistic uh, view of this character, that while there are trolls out there who pick on people online, you know, you wanted this to be as kind as possible to your subject um, what kind of concerns do you have you know because to the outside viewer you think gosh this is really depressing a life mm. but at the same time you know he seems to be content to a certain extent with his lot yeah I think I mean I had a lot of concerns to be mm. honest especially before I signed it to him I was um, there were lots of lots of times I wasn't sure if it was ethically mm. the right thing to do mm. because it's um, but yeah, I think for me it was important just to stay objective and um, or to try and stay objective. I mean, in some ways um, it is edited because I choose the moments that I put in the book. So it's also a version of what I want the reader to see, mm. which again in Rear Window is also the case in, in some ways because L.B. Jeffries picks on the narrative that he wants to put together and it's his version of events. So... Um, yeah, so what was the question? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> just just an awareness that, you know, you are kind of documenting the life of someone who perhaps is neurodivergent or is yeah. suffering from some kind mm. of mental illness just being For sure. I mean, sensitive. I feel like there should definitely be visibility for that. Mm. That's very important. I mean, I think um, ideally um, also, I mean, by people who suffer from, you know, the things that are portrayed in the book. I mean, um, but yeah, I think it was important for me, obviously, to not um, ridicule him in any way and to make sure that he's happy with the way the book, book portrays mm. him, which luckily he was. So yeah. It was also, for those kinds of reasons, it's also a very important book. I mean, I don't know what the statistics are in other countries, but I read about uh, in Japan, for example, I think, I can't remember what the term is, but there are three million people who have kind of, decided on a life or felt that they have no other life where they never leave you know their room they're you know become uh, kind of hermits um and so this is kind of a modern phenomenon as well as you know the kind of andy warhol 15 minutes of fame that everyone has on twitch and social media you know so these things seem to be coalescing as an aspect of of normal life 
Yeah, for sure. And I think it's something, I mean, I don't know, but I personally see myself reflected in him a lot of the times and not only on the page where I'm actually <laughs> reflected. Yeah. But I think, you know, there's, um, I think that's what I found so personal about, so personal about his um, presence is that, like, you know, we do spend sometimes spend days where we just stare on the screen and, like, lay on the bed and, you know, it's hard to do anything. But kind of that's sort of not what you see in, out in the world because it's not interesting to a lot of people, I guess. But mm. um, So I think that's something that really drew me to him as well because it's not that I cannot identify myself with him at times, you know, so... Sure. Nice. Um, <laughs> so, in terms of the format, uh, should we ask questions of the audience if people have anything they want to ask you, and then we can move on to uh, to Dan and um, Alex F. Mark II. Um, does anyone in the audience have any questions they might like to ask Veronica about her book? Simon. Um, with passage of time, when you pick the book up, are you looking at a printed picture? Are you looking at a painting? Are you looking at a digital image? Or are you looking at Harry? Is there a, a bit that you can see that that's where your brain stops and you're looking at that image? Or are you going all the way back to the individual human? You mean now when I pick up yes, the book? Yes, you're looking at the book now. I haven't looked at it much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I have, I'm just, you know, when it's you... Yeah, it's a funny it's thing when you work for years on one project and then suddenly it's an object and you're a bit scared of it, I have to say, mm -hmm. to kind of like properly... You're scared to find mistakes as well, I guess. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, I definitely see him. I mean, yeah, that, for sure. He's I mean, I like he's him. not just a subject anymore. No. Uh, and, uh, sorry, a subject. He's still, still, he's still a human rather than yeah, definitely. a picture in a book. Yeah. Sure. Um, I'm interested in in the kind of issues of consent in the yeah. work. What, what, mm -hmm. what would you have done if he wasn't happy? If he wasn't happy with the book? With the book, yeah. I never asked myself the question because <laughs> he was. But, I mean, it was... I, so I, before I sent it to anyone or showed it to anyone, I showed it to him. So that was important. So it wasn't that, like, you know, I would have never approached a publisher and then asked for his permission because that would have not felt right, I think. Um, but yeah, it would have been unfortunate. Yeah. Just keep it in a drawer somewhere. And, uh... Probably. I mean, yeah, no, I can't see how I could have, yeah, went through with it if he did not like it. No, yeah. Can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. it's fun. Um, yeah, it's fun. So, <laughs> is it... All, not all, but nearly all comics have this thing where you have characters and you have to draw them again and again and again and again so that you can see a progression of a story. This one in particular, it's the same guy mm -hmm. in pretty much every panel, in, often in very similar positions. Having done that now, could, would you ever do another comic which is just about one person that you redraw a very similar picture <laughs> many, many times? Or was that comforting to you? Or do you think, at least I'm going to have two people in the next one? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Um, hard to say I really enjoy drawing just one okay. to focus on I think in I'm someone who focuses on one thing at a time um, whether this is a yeah or one maybe yeah I think I quite like to dedicate my attention to something specific quite like that I dedicate me I don't know so I could see myself doing that again but it, 
I mean, so far I haven't um, met. Yeah. I think it's really. I I haven't read it. Like, really sorry, I haven't had an opportunity to read it yet. But it's just so. It's really like an amazing work. Like just judging it as a painting instead of like as a comic book. It's in that tradition of like um, uh, the sort of artist gaze that not you know historically has fallen on female subjects. Yeah. Um, and has all this complexity and problems built in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm going to go home and read it. I think this is really amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think that that is one thing that was maybe I, I could mention just quickly is that um, the female gaze was something in the book that was quite important to me mm-hmm. because, um, and also maybe how I justified for it for myself as well, because I feel like um, through film and literature, it is traditionally, you know, the woman is the object that's being spied on. And um, the voyeur is traditionally a male figure, whether it's like a positive figure, like a detective or spy, or it's like a pervert or, you know. But um, I think it was quite satisfying to reverse that um, that stereotypical role. Mm. Another guess. example of role reversal. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Right. Veronica, thank you very much. For more info about Veronica Mucic's graphic novel Cyberman, please go to the publisher's website myriadeditions.com and click on the book's drop-down menu, which will take you to their graphic novel selection. Other excellent graphic novels available for Myriad Editions include various titles by Daryl Cunningham, including Putin's Russia, Billionaires and Graphic Science, Zara Slattery's award-winning graphic novel Coma, Saba Khan's excellent biography and autobiography The Roles We Play, and many other titles such as Blackwood by Hannah Eaton, Biscuits by Jenny Robbins, The Wolf of Baghdad by Carol Isaacs, and many more. You can find more info about Veronica's work by going to her website, veronikamucic.com. That's V-E-R-O-N-I-K-A. M-U-C-H-I-T-S-C-H dot com, which as well as having excerpts from Cyberman, includes short comics such as They Who Eat Alone and Property Management. My Q&A with Veronica was recorded at Waterstones in Brighton last year as part of a panel discussion, which we're now rejoining as I'm talking to artist Daniel Locke and writer Alex Frith about their book, Two Heads, where two neuroscientists explore how our brains work with other brains, a non-fiction graphic novel that looks at the work of Alex's parents, Uta and Chris Frith, two pioneering neuroscientists. My interview with Dan and Alex is followed by a Q&A and Veronica chips in to some of the questions asked of the panel. And as these interviews were recorded in front of a live audience in a bookshop in Brighton, you'll have to forgive the background noise. Uh, and in the book, you note that your parents always kind of had comics around when you were growing up. Mm. Your job as a children's book author for us <laughs> uh, is to write kind of illustrated sciencey books for children. 
But had you been wanting to do something that was a longer kind of comic book, a longer kind of graphic novel, before yes. you hit on it's... the idea of I'll do, I'll have my parents <laughs> as the narrators? I mean, I, yeah, so I, I grew up in a house where there were lots of comics among all sorts of other books. I've always liked reading them and, you know, made my own crude comics as a child and thought that would be an amazing thing to do. Somehow lost faith in my ability as an artist and then thought, oh, well, I can't just be a writer. That's, no one does just writing in comics. <laughs> And then got this job. So my day job worked at Osborne. I write children's non-fiction books. So basically I explain things to children. And they're, they're always kind of highly illustrated, but I don't do the drawing. And my parents, frankly, decided to do this as an indulgence because they like comics and know that, you know, certainly in their sort of academic science world, people don't tend to take comics seriously, and that annoyed them. And they thought, well, they've got this... You know, they, they were asked to do a lecture series and then told to turn it into a book afterwards. And at that point, they were kind of sufficiently kind of established and semi-retired and thought, well, this is the chance, let's do it as a comic. They didn't feel confident enough to do that, so they kind of asked me to do the writing of the comic bit for them. And it certainly, I don't think I could have done it without the sort of training of writing children's books. So something about mm. having to learn how to explain things to six, seven, eight-year-olds is a really good discipline for them thinking, well, can I explain it to a, you know, a 20-year-old? Gosh. In theory, it's the same thing. <laughs> and I don't know how we found Dan, but we, we were looking for artists to do it, and someone I suggested your name, and we sent you a sort of sample page that hasn't ended up in the book. Funding. No, the Goldstone one. Yes, well, but you've done sciencey comics before, and you've done comics yeah, that's in conjunction world. with the uh, the Welcome mm-hmm. Centre. So maybe yeah. that that was the link, or were uh, you doing those at I the same time? I think it was actually someone like another comics person had seen this job, and I just threw my hat in the ring. Um, and I went up to London uh, mm. to meet you, and we went to that weird Turkish restaurant. <laughs> so, the creative process. Uh, your parents had written these lectures. You mm. then broke them down into comic strip format, and then Dan drew them. Or was there more? That was kind of what back they thought might happen. Right. Okay. I don't. It's one of those funny things. Like, you know, I started writing this probably six or seven years ago, and I'd long forgotten exactly what it was like writing it. But it's one of those things where it, it just was very easy to write based on the principle that I wasn't trying to make up a story or have anything to say for myself. I was just thinking, I've you know, grown up having so many conversations with my parents about what their job is and what they found out recently that it was just sort of pouring that onto the page. And it seemed to me important early on that I can't just get straight into what their lectures are about, which were aimed at you know, graduate level students and above, without trying to do the kind of, let's talk a bit about how the brain actually works and what it is first. Mm. So it kind of started like that, and then by Tell the time it went to the lecture bit, the, the thesis of the book, of the, of the parents' lectures, that's like key to selling the book. How do you mean? <laughs> well, like what it's about. Oh yeah, so <laughs> it's about um, Just the, the fact elevator that, pitch. Um, <laughs> it, the one. Okay, so our, we we all have brains, and we know roughly that our brains kind of look after various things in our body. But the crux of what neuroscience has been about in the last maybe 15, 20 years is the fact that actually what brains are particularly designed to do is live in a world where there are other brains. And it's very, like most people know from experience, if you spend any time on your own, you kind of go a bit mad and it's horrible. And that's just like a sign of your brain not being happy. Hmm. And the problem is that the way people have studied brains for so long has been like in isolation. You can put one person in a scanner where you can cut up one brain at a time and look at it in different Hmm. ways. And the when, only, the, when the person's yeah. dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what my parents have been doing, and lots of other people as well, of course, is trying to work out how to do experiments to see what happens when you put people in pairs or in groups and 
sort of looking at what is it that brains are doing with each other. And again, we all kind of know from experience that there are some things where we notice that we're copying other people without having thought about it. And there's other times when we're deliberately choosing to mm. copy other people. And these are all sort of different experiences. And there are times when you're pretending that you're interested in a comic when you're really not, just to impress someone who's <laughs> um, You know, it's, um, this is the, what they're exploring. And it's really new science, as far as I understand it. So, yeah, so there's kind of like, you get some preamble in basic brain science first, and then it's like, well... The, the takeaway, ta- when you're like in a next party and you want to come across as really intelligent, the takeaway is the brains work better with other brains, right? Mm. Yeah. But there are all sorts mm. of problems and complications on the way there. Mm. So we talk about like a prejudice and how it's like inbuilt in, in, into us. Well, I, I don't know, I just drew the pictures. Alex and his wonderful parents do. Um, Yes, it's good because we've all got brains. Like, but that's why it's literally happening right now. <laughs> it's that's why it's really nice that um, by accident or design, the fact that these are the two books that are being discussed side by side. Yeah. Because two heads is all about it's how all design, brains. Like, there's no accident. Brains work <laughs> better fun. with other people. Yeah. While Veronica's book is all about actually, yeah. if you've got someone who's living in isolation, mm. you know, it seems to be a very lonely experience. And if their entire life is mediated through a chat box probably fairly meagre conversations, then it seems a far you know, lesser experience as a human being than if you have other interactions with other people. But it still counts, so the internet oh, yeah, is yeah, a good yeah, thing yeah. for curing loneliness in yes, some yeah, respects. Yeah. So, mm. Um, yeah, it's an amazing. That's the thing I was, I was thinking about your book is the amazing sort of dance of loneliness and togetherness that's, that's taking place there. You described yourself immediately when I met you for the first time as like an introvert. And yet you're in front of all these people right now. So, you know, maybe there's just as different ways of expressing extrovertness. So could you talk a little bit about your process of collaboration? Was it as simple that you wrote a script with panel breakdowns? Or, Dan, how much of a say did you have in kind of like uh, page layout and maybe the odd gag that's included in the, uh, the imagery? Alex is the easiest person in the entire world to collaborate with. If anyone is an uh, illustrator, I think I can see a couple out there, <laughs> who would like to work with a writer, then like beg him to work with you, because he's amazing. So Alex would send me a, a, um, a double page, uh, like an A4 page of each spread that were organized into panel suggestions and often with reference and ideas for what the panels would look like. I mean, you're saying you lost faith in your artistic brain, but it's, <laughs> it's still there. The only thing that was missing was the actual drawings, and then that would have made me redundant, so I didn't want to highlight that. <laughs> the actual drawing is the important bit. <laughs> yeah, so I, I wrote a script. I mean, this is basically the way I work in Osborne books, so kind of line up panels on a page, put in a description of what I think the picture might be, write some text, and send it, and then Dan says, no, that doesn't work, you need more space here, or can't mm. we make that one big page, instead it'd be much more fun. And I think I pretty much always said yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. as we got further on, it ended up being like a job of collage quite a lot of the time, didn't mm. it? Like I'm, going back and mining old pages for bits that we wanted to keep, or adding stuff to make more space. I, I did decide right at the very beginning to do the comic, and Dan didn't mind this, basically as a nine-panel grid for every single page, on the belief that we were really hoping to be able to sell this to people who don't ever read comics, and that that seemed like the easiest way to, you know, people who don't read comics have a hard time the first time. I'm sure, you know, you're all comics people, so you must have had a situation where someone said, I just can't get on with them. Mm. There's this weird idea that we have that comics are a great way to learn to read, 
And I think that's not true because reading comics is different from mm. reading prose. And they're a great way to give books to kids who don't like reading like, other kind of books because it's a different thing to try. But mm. um, anyway, so once you've kind of decided you've got the, the nine panel grid, mm. it's a nice restriction that then frees you up, mm. I think. Um, mm. And it did mean that cutting and pasting was easier if you said it was in the wrong sequence. <laughs> yeah. You couldn't actually move around. Yeah, although the, the, the panel I chose, the panel, the panel size that I drew them in, yeah, because I just wanted to say, I had to draw so many scientists, and they were so fussy about the likeness. Really? Like, I had to draw, <laughs> I, one, one time we went to a party where some of your parents' friends, who were mm. all scientists, were mm. there, and I had to go outside and photograph them all for better reference. All, like, prominent scientists, as well as our children and <laughs> ourselves. I didn't have very good reference on Google. Google let me down. I can't believe it does happen. Yeah. I mean, um, you say they're famous scientists. I think that's Carl Friston. And he's yeah, that's right. Theoretically eminent in the field of neuroscience, but he's not he, so famous he'd be on Google. Well, he was on BBC all the time because he was he was on that alternative uh, sage. You okay. know, during the pandemic, there was like a group of scientists that set themselves up as like an alternative. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. yeah. And he was he was on that, so he kept on popping up on Newsnight, and I was like. Oh. <laughs> so Dan, doing a comic where you're drawing the same characters panel after panel. <laughs> oh yeah. The first thing I can say is that the heads just get more and more spherical. <laughs> but when I first like, did these character designs, they had like proper shaped heads, and they just became circles. But I must have drawn them. Drawing a panel. And you then like, wanted to go back and read all most of chapter one. Oh god, because the first chapter was just a nightmare. I still, you know, what you were saying about. Um, your fear of looking back over your book it's just horrifying <laughs> I, I just it's almost like I never I do want to do another book so I have to feed my children but because of that experience <laughs> I'm almost like I never want to go near, near another book because it makes like it makes entire single books on shelves in book shops hard to go near <laughs> <laughs> I read some research some years ago about they got some, um, I think it may have been science uh, students at a university, mm. to read a page of text about a branch of science they weren't familiar with. And then, you know, so this is an experiment, like your parents okay. do in the book. Mm. Uh, and then another group from the same year to read the same page rendered as a traditional comic. And then a third group to read the same page rendered again but as a comic where the images didn't make any sense. Okay. So instead of your parents mm. talking, it might be a banana with a speech balloon coming out of it or whatever. And then ask them questions about it. And the students that read it as a traditional comic did the best. Okay. Then the ones who had it as a page of traditional text did second best. And then the ones who had it as a comic that didn't make sense did worse, presumably because they were thinking, why is this banana talking about Euroscience? <laughs> I was really hoping you'd find it the other way around. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, I mean, that suggests mm. that these kind of books where, you know, a non-fiction graphic novel can be used to actually not only be used as a, a reference book, presumably mm. this would be very mm. useful to anyone who's studying Neuroscience at kind so. of university yeah. level, mm. but also anyone who wants a kind of gradual, a gentle introduction to the subject who wouldn't otherwise buy a textbook on Neuroscience. They might see a graphic novel and think, oh, actually... This is, uh, this is something that interests me. You know, so I guess you know, it works on loads of different levels, both as a resource and as you know, mm. a, a comic that can be educational. I hope so. I mean, one of the things I really wanted to do with it is to use comics to work through the steps of what, setting up an experiment, doing it, looking mm. at the results, making sense of it. Basically the sorts of things that scientific papers do, but in science journals have got themselves into a rut where they write in a certain mm. style because they never really have to have an audience outside their own. And you know, I, I suspect there. Are, I, mean, I know there are some scientists who want to do it in comics form, but obviously it takes time and 
publishers don't necessarily want to publish it. Um, but that was what I was really hoping to. And part of me is a little bit disappointed that, like so many other non-fiction comics, it, it, there's a lot of biography in it. So a lot of the great non-fiction comics are, you know, Art Spiegelman and Alison Vector telling their own story, and they're in it. And my parents are in this all the way through. And there are occasional bits that are just basically talking about their childhood and life because partly we were told, but also we kind of knew in ourselves it might make the book more fun to read if yeah. we just have little asides. But I do wonder if there is a way to do kind of pure non-fiction comics in the way that, you know, something like well, Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time doesn't yeah. talk about his life story. He just tells you about the Big Bang and black holes. It's like, mm. why yeah, can't we do that? Yeah, but that's famously... I mean, like, totally, <laughs> I, get, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I think that's, that would be amazing... Um, thing to make but what I was going to say about that what you're saying there is that's really like I think it's a really important goal like mm. why not like comics mm. is a really amazing medium and incredibly infinitely flexible and adaptable but I think you know one of the things I'm proud of with the book that we've made here is that um, we have uh, uh, opened the door to people by using those elements of biography and comedy and hopefully made the science accessible. I think it's like profoundly important. I think that we, you know, we need more of that. Mm. You know, we've just gone through this really terrible crisis. There's only going to be more of them. We're living in an even worse crisis, the climate crisis. Science is, whether we like it or not, the predominant culture of our, of our time. It's the thing that we're all living and engaged with, even if we deny its truth or, or the truths that it, it uncovers. Um, uncovers. And so, you know, as a sort of someone wants people to be engaged with things rather than just all coming from the top, then I think it's a really important job to do. Mm. I was just going to say that uh, there is that series of introducing books like yeah. um, Communism, an introduction, yeah. um, Queer, a graphic guide, yeah. you know. Yeah. But those are A, a lot shorter than Two Heads. Um, B, can be a bit infographic at times. Yeah. While yours is kind of like a substantial graphic novel, so yeah. it's kind of straddling those two kind mm. of uh, aspects of the medium, having something that is a little bit more personal and has a bit of biography to it. Mm-hmm. And we do live in a world where everyone who appears you know, on television, as well as talking about how wonderful their cooking or their pottery is, has to talk about their journey. You know? So maybe it is expected that even if it is a book about neuroscience, you have yeah. to talk about your parents' that's journey true. to get yeah, there as yeah. well. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think that's why you know, perhaps it's successful uh, in reaching different audiences because it has a bit of biography, it has mm. a bit of infographics, it has a lot that you can learn from it. It approaches that form that people have gotten used to through those introducing books, but is a bit more substantial as well. So, you know, perhaps, like you say, it's just pushing the medium forward a bit. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it may not be necessary to say, but the reality is that we, an agent, when we were making the book, decided to kind of pick it up and try and sell it to publishers based on the fact that it was about Booter and Chris Frith, who yeah. he'd heard of and wanted to read the book by. Mm. Huh. So, you know, it it's trading on their there's even a chapter in there about the fact that this trades on their fame and reputation mm. as kind of interesting scientists who are worth believing <laughs> I love hearing them talk about that though and I love mm. that part of the book um, and it's a really important element of like human interaction isn't it uh, your chap wants to be famous like why is that an objective why, why would anyone want that as a goal it's like madness but um, here we are sitting in front of a room full of people I, I literally hate it but I can't stop <laughs> talking don't hate it it's your favourite no it, I suppose it's like I don't know what it is it's weird isn't it it's that introvert extra yeah, thing with exactly. an A or an O yeah. <laughs> yeah. there's so a chapter wrong, yeah. in Two Heads about recursion which is an annoyingly fiddly thing to explain because it, it 
That's why I brought it up. Especially in comics, it's, it's, it's similar to the idea of a repeated image repeating again and again and again. But in sort of neuroscience terms, it's more about kind of getting stuck in the loop of doing different blocks of things that you can kind of do repeatedly. And it, it's something that humans are quite good at doing. And it's a trick we use when we're sort of playing chess to work out if I move my pawn here, then she might move her queen there, so I'll have to do this. And you're kind of thinking about what each other are thinking and reimagining the board in your head. Isn't it part, partly um, how we like imagine other people's minds? And probably, minds? yeah. Um, and it's the sort of thing that people like to say, ah, oh, that's something that no animal can do. And then someone else comes on and says, oh, I think you'll find that songbirds do this when they're repeating their patterns of singing. Anyway, um, <laughs> there you yeah. go. Um, <laughs> how, how fast um, would you say your kind of page rate was on this book? Because when I look at your back catalogue, Dan, I find it astonishing <laughs> that you bring out a book this length like every couple of years. Yeah, but then, like, your, your paintings are amazing. I'm talking, we're talking doodles are pretty quick to draw. So <laughs> How quick? I, I, I suppose I was doing a finish two finished pages a day sometimes when I got oh, into the rhythm of it wow. and I felt like I was horribly <laughs> slow though, well sometimes. you drew the whole book once in quite good sketch format once in very good ink format and then a third time in full colour and then you redrew lots of it so <laughs> I literally yeah. have no life Dan is fiendishly fast <laughs> I would say and it's digital presumably no it's all drawn on paper wow. with okay. ink and then like coloured digitally um, because it's just a absolute nightmare to, to like the paint, painting takes a long time you've got to wait for stuff to dry and stuff isn't it? I did this project uh, years ago in, in a, like a housing association that's, that delivers care to people who've been long term in prison and I, I spent a lot of time like you watching these people and I, I was like oh, I really want to do these amazing paintings and stuff each painting just took so long it was a nightmare but I'm, I'm proud of that I'm proud of that work I, I like that work but I'm yeah, the book would have would literally would probably just finished the first chapter <laughs> five years in. If you painted it all. Yeah, yeah. if I'd painted it all. Then I guess in a way you then had to adapt your style to the manageability of the project. If you want to draw two pages a day, you have to have a simpler line. Oh God, no one wants more... to draw two pages a day. No, no, but I mean, Jesus. in order to you know not spend the rest of your life on it, yeah. in order to hit a deadline. Yeah. Because I remember I, I interviewed um, uh, Charlie Adlard a few years ago when. He, He'd been drawing The Walking Dead for a decade. Yeah. And initially, in order to get out 22 pages a month, I think he was drawing twice the size of the printed yeah. page. Then he went down to like one and a half, yeah. and then one to one, and then towards the end, like yeah. three quarters size, and they were actually blowing it up, just so that he felt that he kind he of ha- could have a life around it. Yeah, well, if you look at the, the, like the uh, uh, Japanese art, like lots of the Japanese uh, artists, uh, their pages are virtually always print you know the size that they drew it is the same size as being printed if not maybe smaller I don't know mm. not an expert but I remember going to see this show at um, British Library and was that just before the pandemic there was like a big the manga exhibition yeah the manga yeah. oh that was yeah, uh, yeah. the British Museum right mm. um, and uh, I couldn't believe how small it was and how amazing I mean those guys must just like kill themselves they should put cameras in their studios because they probably never leave and then maybe you could get another do another book <laughs> like uh, yeah the comic artist looking through a camera, drawing another yeah, comic artist. Com- Whoa! That, that, that's, that's, that's approaching that's recursion. recursion. That's, yeah. that's <laughs> this is just like a personal plug. I've got, there's a new hospital being built in Brighton, and I did this massive like 17-metre uh, mural for it, which wow. is going to go up when the hospital opens. Um, it's been delayed for the, because of the pandemic, but um, I thought, why not? I may as well get a personal plug in there. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but it's working with scientists again, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm still relevant. And I guess looking at people, I spoke, interviewed loads of people, and they're all real people in it. And on that bombshell, uh, <laughs> does anyone have any questions uh, for Dan or Alex in the audience? Yeah. Um, how involved were your parents in the process, and like how did that work? Oh, they were pretty, pretty thoroughly involved, and um, we got on well enough. So basically, we they said, "Can you do this?" And I said, "Yes." And I think we probably had quite a lot of conversations to start with, and I was sort of jot down notes, and we tried to work out chapter chunks. And then I basically went away and ignored them for a while and wrote a, s a certain amount of script. And they read over the script, and mostly were, what they were doing was saying, you haven't quite got the science right here, you need to kind of explain it better. Occasionally I'd email them and say, it'd be really useful if you had an embarrassing story from your childhood at this point, <laughs> and they would absolutely refuse to tell me any. <laughs> um, and then, um, that, like, you know, Dan's sort of first round of sketches, they'd kind of read it over thoroughly and comment on it. Essentially, like, they were quite useful at not being so involved. Every time they saw new bits, it was new to them, and they could be quite objective about what they thought was working and what wasn't working. Um, and we did get on surprisingly well in the process. So I don't live with them anymore. Um, <laughs> but I, I, they only in, I, I live in London, and they live on the other side. And so I'd go and see them in person probably once every couple of months. And that's, you know, they were very keen to talk about it and to keep, you know... The, when we were doing it first and we didn't have an agent or a publisher or anything or even any kind of deadline, it was quite useful to have them to be the people giving me and then Dan the deadlines to do things because mm. I don't know how any other artists do it without deadlines. <laughs> yeah, they're really, I mean, that, that's part of, like, I couldn't, you're amazing in managing these massive projects. I literally, it was, it was, it was quite something uh, just to keep it ticking over. It, was, it took us, like, five years to do this book. I mean, it, it, yeah, it could have got lost. Mm. And then Easy. that's the five years thing was relevant because then particularly my my mum would sort of say, oh you know we've actually found out quite a lot of new stuff since then. We better update this. And I had said at a certain point, no. we have to just accept that science keeps moving on, yeah. and all we can do is capture a moment of it. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to put a disclaimer though. This is what science thought in 2017. It's now all wrong. <laughs> no, but that's coming. Unfortunately. Yeah. But in the meantime, thank you very much, Veronica, Dan, and Alex. Two Heads, where two neuroscientists explore how our brains work with other brains, by Dan Locke and Alex Frith, is available now from all good bookshops. For more info about Veronica Mucci's graphic novel Cyberman, please go to publisher Myriad Editions website, myriadeditions.com, stroke books, stroke Cyberman. That's M-Y-R-I-A-D editions.com stroke books stroke cyberman veronica mooch's website can be found at veronicamooch.com that's v-e-r-o-n-i-k-a-m-u-c-h-i-t-s-c-h.com and with veronica getting her book published on the basis of winning the myriad first graphic novel competition in 2020 I'm happy to announce that I'm one of the judges for this year's first graphic novel competition, which is now being run in connection with Selfmade Hero. You can find more information about the award by going to firstgraphicnovel.co.uk. 
And to enter, you need to send 15 to 30 pages of a graphic novel in progress, as well as a synopsis, completion of the entry form, and £10 entry fee or £5 concessions. The deadline for the competition is the 14th of September. And this graphic novel competition has launched the careers of many cartoonists over the last decade and is seen as a very worthwhile accolade for people who want to have a go at writing and drawing a long-form graphic novel. And along the way, you'll also get feedback from the judges, which may be useful even if you don't make the shortlist. More info, as mentioned before, at firstgraphicnovel.co.uk. More info about Daniel Locke's work can be found at daniellock.com. That's D-A-N-I-E-L-L-O-C-K-E.com. And you can find more info about Alex Frith's work by going to osborne.com. That's U-S-B-O-R-N-E.com and searching for Alex Frith. Daniel Locke has teamed up again with the co-creator of his earlier graphic novel, Out of Nothing, David Blandy, to create a new role-playing game based on survival in a near-future apocalypse. The art and writing for this role-playing game look terrific, and it's being funded now on Kickstarter. So go along to kickstarter.com and search for EcoMofos, that's E-C-O-M-O-F-O-S, with rewards starting at £15 for a PDF of the guidebook to the game, £20 for a spiral-bound version, £35 for a fully book-bound version of the game, and much more. The campaign runs until Thursday the 27th of July and is well worth checking out. Between now and then, there are various signings taking place across London and the home counties. At Forbidden Planet on Shaftesbury Avenue, they have a signing of Spider-Man End of the Spider-Verse, a graphic novel written by Dan Slott, and that's taking place on Wednesday the 5th of July from 5 to 6 p.m. On Friday the 7th of July at Forbidden Planet, Declan Shalvey is doing a signing of his recent comics, including Marvel's relaunch of the Alien franchise, the collection The Art of Declan Shalvey, and other comics such as Time Before Time and Old Dog. That's taking place on Friday the 7th from 6 to 7 p.m. at the Forbidden Planet Megastore on Shaftesbury Avenue in London. More info about all Forbidden Planet events by going to forbiddenplanet.com stroke events. Just across town at Gosh, they have a couple of signings coming up with Rachel Smith signing her recent books Snippets and Isabella and Blodwen at Gosh on Thursday the 6th of July from 6 to 7 p.m. Their Reads reading group uh, is taking place on Wednesday the 12th of July from 7pm with this month's book being Blood of the Virgin that you can also buy at Gosh with the discount code ReadsJuly23. For more info about all Gosh events, please go to goshlondon.com stroke the dash gosh dash blog. At the Cartoon Museum at Wells Street near Oxford Street Circus, they have their continuing exhibition, Norman Thelwell Saves the Planet, with eco-drawings by the famous horse cartoonist, as well as a new exhibition, She is My Daughter, All of Her is Me, based on the work of Ella Barron, sketching staff and patients about the difficulty of maternity care in South Sudan, as funded by Doctors Without Borders. That runs until the 8th of October, and also this month they have a couple of events taking place, 
including a talk about the new graphic novel Hancock, The Lad Himself, and that's taking place on Thursday the 13th of July from 6pm. And on Thursday the 27th of July, they have a workshop run by Ardman Animation celebrating the 30th anniversary of Wallace and Gromit, with Will Harding running a workshop on how to make your own characters, with three sessions running on Thursday the 27th of July starting at 2pm for children and 7pm for adults. More info about all Cartoon Museum events by going to cartoonmuseum.org. At the Paperback and Pulp Fair, which takes place at the Bloomsbury Holiday Inn on Sunday the 30th of July, Ryan Hughes will be their guest of honour, signing his most recent collection, Ray Guns and Rocket Ships, vintage science fiction book cover art. And you can find more info about that by going to etcfairs.com. The interviews that you heard in today's show were recorded at an event affiliated with Cartoon County. Our normal venue is in the Walrus Pub in the Lanes near the seafront in Brighton. And the next Cartoon County get-together will be taking place on the 31st of July. Cartoonist yet to be announced. So keep an eye on www.cartooncounty.com for more info about this and all forthcoming events. Panel Borders was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Borders production. You can find all previous episodes on our blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com and we'll be back on air on the first Wednesday in July with guests Teresa Robertson talking about her new tongue-in-cheek pamphlet looking at the history of the British monarchy as well as her small press autobiographical comics and historian Alice Loxton who'll be talking about her book Uproar which talks about the early days of British satirist cartoonists how they found their careers the connections with British printmaking and high art in London. So please tune in on Wednesday the 5th of July at half five on Resonance FM in London with a repeat at 11am on Sunday the 9th of July. As ever, thanks for listening. This programme has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.